Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. On this uh, Thanksgiving Sunday, with all that we have to be thankful for, we give thanks for the powerful, life-giving Word of God. Uh, From that great hymn of praise, poem of praise, For God's word, Psalm 119, we read these words. I just chose verses 80, 90, 93. I could have chosen many others from Psalm 119. But listen to this. Your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. Your faithfulness extends to every generation as enduring as the earth you created. Your regulations remain true to this day for everything serves your plans. If your instructions hadn't sustained me with joy, I would have died in my misery. I will never forget your commandments, for by them you give me life. Over the next two months, we're exploring our core convictions as an evangelical covenant church. Last week, we touched a little bit on our church family history and how the covenant church Um, was shaped by a renewal movement that was happening in post-Reformation Europe, a movement known as pietism. Simply put, pietism is a movement of men and women who wanted a a real connection with God, a living heart connection, not just dead orthodoxy or not just big academic brains, but a living, robust life in Christ with hearts that have been reborn by the Spirit, and then lives that are lived out in faithful obedience to Jesus Christ. That movement spread across Europe, and particularly the Swedish men and women who emigrated to Canada, Canada and the U.S., they pulled together to form what we know as the Evangelical Covenant Church. That's what we're part of. They had emerged from a time when their own... uh, you say native Lutheranism, had been plagued by divisive theology and shrunken fellowship. Their experience had been that unless you agreed on every fine point of theology, you couldn't fellowship with that person. You couldn't share in mission together. You couldn't gather around the Lord's table together. And these mission friends who formed the Evangelical Covenant Church in 1885 in North America, they bravely rejected that kind of reductionist theology as unbiblical, as wrong. And together they rallied a new family of churches around the unifying truth of Psalm 119.63, I am a companion of all those who fear you and to those who keep your precepts. Rejecting a, a narrow fellowship a narrow definition of the body of Christ. These early covenanters called for Christian companionship across the lines with all those who fear God, all those who obey his word. And now that seems very mundane to us today. We're kind of like, yeah, whatever. 
because most of us care very little about denominational particularities. In fact, some of you thought, oh my goodness. For the next how many weeks is Tom going to be talking about this? Thus proving my point. But in that day, this was a radical departure from the norm. And it set a trajectory for the evangelical covenant family of churches that still holds true today. That rather than dividing the body of Christ into increasingly smaller and smaller factions, we seek to be mission friends together in Christ, believing that our fellowship with one another is grounded in the fact of what Jesus has done, in the unity that he accomplished on the cross that we still are companions with all who fear the Lord and who obey his precepts. But you still can ask, what does that mean? I mean, okay, fine. What does the covenant church, though, really believe? Where do they stand? What's the heart of the evangelical covenant church? Like, I'm new here, and I would actually like to know. Well, that's what this series is all about. We're going to explore our core convictions, which are helpfully arranged around six covenant affirmations. And these six affirmations help express who we are, our our identity, our gravitational center, not in a way that attempts to bar um, other Christians from fellowship or to set up some extra standard that's outside of scripture, but rather to simply express our identity and our heart as a community of mission friends. And for those of you who are new to the Erickson Covenant Church, I actually hope this series helps you understand who we are And uh, it could be defining for you in such a way that you decide this is not the church for me. And that is helpful, I think, to find out when you're new, not several years down the road. It's also helpful to define like, oh yeah, this is the community I want to be part of. For those of you who are new to faith, this will not just be a series that is like about, you know, propaganda about the church. Please, no actually will be a conversation that will enhance your spiritual life. Because we're not talking about a bunch of weird points. We're talking about central stuff to the faith. And I hope it'll enhance your spiritual journey. And then, of course, for those of us who call Erickson Covenant Church home, my goal in teaching this is that it would solidify our sense of who God has called us to be as covenanters in mission together. So we have six covenant affirmations. We're going to just take one per week through October and November. We're going to break for a little special Kids Sunday at the end of the month. But uh, other than that, we'll be continuing this through to Advent. The very first covenant affirmation is the centrality of God's word. The centrality of God's word. It's our first affirmation, but it's not simply sort of one in six, you know, but actually forms the foundation of the other five affirmations that come, and it overlaps with our most basic confession as a church. You see, as a covenant church, we don't have a long, detailed statement of faith that outlines every particular thing we believe about this and that, which I think is helpful to know because a lot of people come to me and say, what's the covenant view of the end times? And I say, well, are you a covenanter? What's your view of the end times? Or what's the covenant view on this? Or what's the covenant view on that? And I often have to say, well, actually you'll find covenanters that believe, you know, a lot of different things. And uh, we can get into what that might mean, but we don't have this long, detailed statement of faith that you have to subscribe to. What we have is this, which is in the preamble of our constitution, of every covenant church constitution that I know of. It's very simple. Here it is. The evangelical covenant church confesses that the Holy Scripture the Old and New Testament is the word of God 
and the only perfect rule for life, doctrine, and conduct. I'm going to read that again. The Evangelical Covenant Church confesses that the Holy Scripture, the Old and the New Testament, is the Word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. That's it. You've just heard the details. We don't have 14 points with 89 subpoints. Our forebearers and those who've guided and shepherded our family of churches didn't set up a theological standard that's actually above the Holy Scriptures themselves. As covenanters, we are Bible people who unapologetically stand together under the authority of these holy scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, and confess this to be the very word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, for doctrine, for conduct, really for everything else. Now, as modern-day pietists who long for a vibrant faith with hearts reborn, God's word is life to us. It's not just a distillery of theological truths. It's not just a source of doctrinal argumentation. It's not just, uh, you know, a bunch of verses you pick and choose that sort of feel nice and apply to your life either. The Holy Scriptures are a living communication from God himself, forming us as a people in Christ, directing us in our lives, both personal and as a community, helping us discern the way of God in the world, which is why early covenanters would routinely ask the question, Where is it written? Where is it written? Whenever they faced a potential division, a practical decision, a personal dilemma, or some sort of potentially damaging theology, they would ask, where is it written? And this question would drive them back to the source, back to the authority of God's word together. Where it was written was a question that was not meant to be asked in arrogance. It was not meant to be a slam down. It was not meant to add to divisiveness, shutting down conversation, but rather with humility and respect, we share this conviction that God's word is only, the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And as a result, we need to go to the scriptures together in order to figure out what's right. And so our first covenant affirmation is the centrality of God's word. Now, one of the interesting things about our sort of pre-covenant history, um, these men and women who were shaped by the pietist movement, who um, particularly in Sweden and others, other, other Scandinavian countries, they would, they would start gathering, often in direct... Um, you know, the church didn't want them gathering in small groups, dangerous things, those small groups. And so um, they would gather in small groups and they would do that and just read and listen to the scripture together. As a result, um, there was a few nicknames for the covenanters, but uh, these early mission friends, that was one nickname they had. But the other nickname they had was, they were called readers. Readers. I forget the Swedish word, Lazar or something like that. Not Swedish. Um, and, but they were called readers. Why? Because what were they doing all the time? They'd get together and they'd read scripture and they'd listen to it and they'd talk about it and they'd pray. Readers of scripture. And I thought for our time together this morning, 
to use this framework that we've already read, how we confess that the Holy Scriptures are the Word of God and, and the only perfect rule for faith, um, for doctrine, and for conduct, I thought what we do today is practice a little bit of that. We actually hear the Word of God today. You are here. We are part of this covenant tradition. Even if you're, even if you're uh, from out of town visiting, you're here in the family today. And so together, let's be readers. Let's be hearers. Let's let God's word speak as we listen together. And so I've asked a number of people to come, and they're going to read from this microphone here today. And we're going to hear the word of God read as we proceed through this framework. So first we confess that the Holy Scripture... The Old and New Testament is the word of God. And I can't remember who I asked to read 2 Timothy 3, but whoever you are, it is your turn. Valerie, thank you. I was going to come and read from 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Jack's going to come read us one more that goes with this theme of our confession that the Holy Scripture is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Awesome. That's our confession. This book lives and I know for many of you, you've experienced the cutting edge of this living word, this God-breathed word. And it is central to our lives as God speaks to us and shapes us. Well, we confess that these scriptures, that they are the word of God, and that they're the only perfect rule for life, doctrine, and conduct. That perfection is what I want you to focus on now as, as uh, Valerie comes to read. Another Valerie comes to read. Um, the only perfect rule means that the Holy Scriptures are the ultimate standard. You can come up. The highest authority. They outrank all other authorities, all other statements, all other theologies or formulations. They surpass all other ideologies or philosophies or cultural powers. And the last half of Psalm 19 offers a hymn of praise to this perfect word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. 
By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Thanks. So we confess the Holy Scriptures to be the word of God and the only perfect rule for what? Well, first for faith, that it's from these scriptures that we discover life in Christ, that we hear the good news, that we experience the regenerating power of God's word and we're able to grow in a lived trust in God. And they're the only perfect rule for that kind of faith. They're the only perfect way of discovering what has actually been done for us by God in Christ, what he's doing for us now through the Holy Spirit and what we need to do, what we need to know, what we need to grow in order to be in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Well, thinking of this as the only perfect rule for faith, let's hear the next scripture from Romans. Ryan's going to come and read that. This one's from Romans 10, 13 to 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Thanks, Ryan. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. This is the word of God, the good news of Jesus. And it creates this faith in Jesus. That God's spirit, through God's perfect word, works in our lives. We also confess the Holy Scriptures the only perfect rule for doctrine. Now, in spite of how I opened up, it's not true that we don't care about doctrine, that we aren't concerned about right belief as covenanters. No, we actually care a great deal. But we realize that there's no particular human formulation that should ever be placed over Scripture. We confess that it is these Scriptures that must always be our center, our gravitational center. They must always be over any human formulation, any theology or statement or ideas. And so as covenanters, what we confess to be true about God, Father, Son, Spirit, what we confess to be true about humans, about sin, about salvation, about hope, redemption, about the church, about our bodies, about our resurrection. It's always in reference to what the Bible teaches. And we'll point at various historical formulations as representatives, such as the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. We'll recognize that we stand within the broad family of Orthodox Christians who confess what has been confessed by Christians for 2,000 years. That is all true. But we look to the scripture as the only perfect rule for that doctrine. So let's listen again to God's word from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Candy's going to read for us. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Kenny. We can trust this word. So the Bible is the only perfect rule for faith, for doctrine, and lastly, for conduct. The word of God actually tells us how to live and calls us to follow God's word, to implement that, to practice that, to live the way of Jesus in the way Jesus taught us to live it. We are called to conduct ourselves in manner in a manner that is worthy of the good news of Jesus, that is aligned with the gift of God's Holy Spirit. And so as God's people formed by his word, we're a people who actually do the word, living in obedience to him. And so my last reader is, from, is going to come and read from James chapter 1. I think it's Rachel, right? Rachel, awesome. Rachel's going to come and read from James chapter 1, verses 22 to twenty. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Thanks, Rachel, and thanks to all of you who read. That's terrific. We are readers. <laughs> we are hearers. But we are also doers. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word so that we can know you, so that we can live according to your will way. Thank you for revealing your word in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And through the Holy Scriptures, enabling us by your Holy Spirit to know you. Thank you. Well, I'd like to have a little moment here and ask you, what kind of questions does this raise for you? What kind of questions does it raise that this is the center, that we affirm this and confess this? Maybe it, maybe it raises a concern for you. Maybe you're wondering about something. Are there any questions that come to your mind when you think of this first affirmation? Those of you who are online, if you put it in the chat, Canny will read it to me, and uh, we'll be able to include your question as well. Yes, so what do we do with disagreements on interpretation within God's Word? And we have lots of them, right? So I'm just going to say how, how we deal with it, and then 
um, we can kind of juggle that around a bit. So one of the things we recognize is that Christian uh, men and women filled with the Spirit of God have come to different conclusions about certain things within Scripture. Can we all acknowledge that? And because someone has come to a different conclusion, that doesn't mean they are suddenly no longer followers of Jesus. I mean, just at a, at a, just a glance, right? We recognize that there are things, particularly within the historic faith, that there's a, there's a variety of opinion on. I mentioned earlier end times. Well, yeah, the view of how things are going to end and how we are to interpret the scripture according to the end, you know, stuff. Well, there's a pretty big bandwidth within recognizably Christian people um, on, on, on what that might be like. And so uh, let, me just, let me keep running with that example because it, it fleshes some, something out. Um, and so what we would say as covenanters is we'd say, let's keep going to Scripture together. Let's not say, well, you believe that? I guess I don't want you in my small group. Or maybe you should go to another church or whatever. Rather, it's saying, let's, as brothers and sisters, let's keep going to the Word together to learn from each other in humility what is God's word saying? And, and so there's a willingness to say, extend grace to each other. And some of our other affirmations will help flesh some of that out, actually, to recognize that within the historic Christian church, within orthodoxy, there are varieties of opinions. Another obvious one, if you've been around the covenant for very long, is our stance on baptism. That we recognize that within the broad historical Christian church, People have baptized differently. Some have chosen to baptize infants. Some have said, no, 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 no. We will wait until they're older, until they're at least, you know, eight years old. Joking a little bit there. I was baptized when I was eight. Um, we'll, we'll wait till they're older. So it's called believer's baptism. Some of us sprinkled. Some of us poured. Some of us dunked people. Some of us held them under until they really repented. You know, we did all the things. Tony, be warned. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there's, we just look at the Christian, um, the, the Christian centuries, we look at the 2,000 years, and we just have to acknowledge that men and women, faithful men and women in Christ, have disagreed on that. And so the covenant church has said, we're going we're gonna to recognize that spirit-filled, under the authority of Scripture, true followers of Jesus have had disagreements on that, and so we're simply going to say, we're going to allow for that, that diversity within the body. We're not going to divide over that. We're going to say we're unified in Christ, however we're baptized. And for some people, that's too open. But for the covenant church, we've said, we're going we're to recognize that that's within common orthodoxy. And so we want to take these interpretations and ask, what are they about? You know, we, we don't, um, I mean, we're going to always say, where is it written? We're always going to take people back to scripture. We're always going to join around scripture. And yet, we recognize there are some interpretations where we say, that puts you outside of Christian orthodoxy. For example, um, somebody says, we think the scripture teaches that Jesus was a created being. There was a time when he didn't exist. He's just like a higher angel or something like that. We'd say, well, where is that written? Let's go to scripture. But we'd also recognize that that's something that stands clearly outside of common, historic, orthodox Christianity. Um, when, we, when I say that common historic Orthodox Christianity, you understand I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to some pretty basic stuff. Who is Jesus? Triune God. 
basic affirmation that all Christians across every stream, um, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, there's agreement on all those things. And so we would, we would say that, that that's orthodoxy. And within that, there's a lot of diversity. And so we want to allow difference of interpretation to pull us together under scripture in a spirit of unity and love, as opposed to the common trait, particularly as people who've inherited the Reformation. The Reformation, we thank God for the Reformation. It, it brought the centrality of grace back. But, but the Reformation also just sent out this message to everyone. By the way, you can decide for yourself what's right. And look what happened. Everyone decided what was right. And so that's why you have this shattering and so many, so many different groups are shattered out and fragmented because everybody lined up behind their favorite thing. And what we want to do is pull back from that and say, no, there's, there's some basic core things that we affirm. And as a covenant church, we want to hold the tent as big as we possibly can. And you'll hear this again, uh, you'll hear this again in weeks to come. But the essence of the covenant, and this is true of other groups as well, say we want to we make sure the tent is large enough to allow, now I'm talking about faith in Christ. You know, everybody who's a true follower of Jesus can fit, but we're not going to make it any bigger than that, you know? And so there's a recognition that there are interpretations that are heterodox outside of the Christian faith, but within that, there's a lot of diversity, and we want to lean into that in the spirit of love and grace. That was a longer answer than you asked for, but I hope it helps. Yeah, Dan. Is it true with different translations of the Bible in the sense that we allow for diversity in translations of the Bible? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, broadly speaking, yes. I mean, there's, um, there, you'll hear me. I mean, there's some translations that I don't think are very helpful um, in that sense. Uh, in all, all us as English speakers, we are overloaded with translations, right? Most of our brothers and sisters in Christ, worldwide and historical, man, if they had one translation in their home, heart, language, they felt blessed. And in English, we've got, you know, like, go through Bible Gateway or version sometime. It's like, oh my goodness. There's a lot of translations. Uh, I think we affirm that there's, there's you know, within um, English translations, there's lots of good translations. Uh, this is just a side uh, Bible study tip that you can, uh, it's really good if you don't speak Greek and Hebrew. Um, so if you don't, um, it's good to use multiple translations in your Bible study. Get something with the these and thous in it. Um, it's kind of wooden, you know, kind of. Get something that's in the middle like the NIV. Um, get something that's farther out at the paraphrase edge. Read them together and things will be highlighted for you and uh, will help you grow in your understanding of Scripture. And you'll notice most of the time the variety is only in how it's expressed in English it's not going to change or vary the meaning. Occasionally, you'll come across something going, whoa, that's really different. And what that indicates is that the original Greek or Hebrew um, is shakier. Not shakier in terms of essential faith or truth, that stuff's solid. But like, is it, it, was it called this or was it called that? Those kinds of things. You'll, you'll notice that. Uh, but translations are good, I think. Other questions? Watch the time. Other questions? Carl.
Yeah. 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 Thanks. Thanks, Carl. And I'll repeat that for those of us who are online. Um, so just looking around the chaos of the word, particularly what's happening uh, over in, in Ukraine, and wondering, um, where's God in all this? Carl, that's a huge, an- a huge question. But I want to I narrow my answer to something that actually relates to what we're looking at today. If you want to know where is God in the midst of the mess, he tells us. He really does. I don't mean that tritely. But when we look at the story of God's people through history, when we read the Psalms or the prophets, when we read um, the New Testament, even books like 1 Peter and others, we discover that God is right there in the mix, in the mess. And there are times in the history of, of the church, history of God's people, where we look around us and it, it, everything just looks like it's gone, it's lost. And we ask, where is God in the midst? He reveals that to us through his word. Because at the very center of the word of God is Jesus the Messiah on the cross. That stands at the center of everything. What that means for us is that as we discover the meaning of God's word in the context of a world gone mad, we know that God entered into our suffering and died there for us, for that brokenness. He doesn't look to the side or ignore it. He knows where we are suffering. His heart is with us because he is one of us. And so even as we look around and we lose hope sometimes, we feel despairing. We're always drawn back to the center that we have a God who came and entered our brokenness as one of us, took our shame and brokenness on himself, died in our place and rose again in victory reminding us that whatever brokenness we see, this is not the end. Evil will not win. Uh, Putin will be held to account. Uh, Evil will be vanquished because it's already been conquered in Christ. And so we keep, again, the centrality of God's word helps us. It renews our hope. It strengthens our resolve, even as we look around and we feel terribly discouraged or we feel even afraid. We read Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Right? He's the strength of my life. Whom shall I fear? I think I got two of those phrases backwards, but you got the point. Psalm 27. Right? And it reminds us of that. And and our, our brothers and sisters, historically, in the scriptures down through history, have faced so many dark times, and God has been faithful to them in the midst of that. His word tells us that and holds us. Time for one more question? Olin. Yeah, so Olin asked, how do I view, how do I view canon? How do we view canon? Right, so there's, there's been... Uh, some variation on what are the accepted books of the Bible. And the Covenant Church comes out, that would be um, an obvious, maybe an obvious point where we inherited, or we're inheritors of broadly, I mean, that's the Orthodox uh, Christian tradition, um, but the Reformation tradition, which we named the 66 books of your English Bible. Um, 
or your German Bible, uh, uh, the 66 books of, of Genesis Revelation would be the, 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 the books that we would hold up and say, these are, this is the canon. This is the rule. Um, I actually think they're the, they're, they're the equivalent words. These are the 66 books. Not, there's not a 67th one floating around that if we found it, we'd suddenly add it in. Nor will we discover someday, yeah, punt that thing, saying things I don't like. Rather, these 66 books are what we would say, not because, um, get this right, please, not because a bunch of bearded dudes in the 300s decided this is the list we want. That's not what happened. Does, does not represent history. But rather, the men and women of the early church, there were, there were books and letters collected that were recognized from the moment they were received to be authoritative, to be from God to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they were viewed, um, first of all, all the Hebrew scriptures first formed the basic canon of the early church. But then they received a gospel from Mark and they received a letter from Paul. And then, and then John wrote something to them. And, and these uh, letters began to be collected and circulated and they were recognized as apostolic in the sense they were from the apostles or someone close to the apostles. They represented the basic teaching, the basic eyewitness reports about Jesus and what that means to follow him. And so we have the New Testament that gets collected. And yes, there were some lists that drifted around, but what we recognize is when there was a, you know, groups of people who said, these are the books, it wasn't them, you know, they weren't drawing names out of a hat or deciding, I like this book. Yeah, let's add this one. Um, uh, rather, it was a, a recognition of what was already true, already authoritative. There's lots more involved. It's a great question. Thanks, Olin. And actually, let me just call it out. If you want more questions answered about canon, how we got our Bibles, talk to Olin. Because <laughs> he's got some great insight into that. Okay. There's more questions, and we can follow up with them in the weeks ahead. There's also a great place uh, in your small groups to ask some of these questions, to discuss them together. Um, You will, in your small groups this week, if you begin your small group this week, you're going to take, I hope that one of you in your small group, at least one, have this little tiny little Covenant Affirmations booklet. Very helpful. Um, We've got extra ones. I'm asking to take one per household. Uh, but I hope someone at your small group will have this. And you'll just read just a little section together about the basic affirmation, and it just will help spur conversation. As we think about practically implementing this, I want to ask you uh, a more of a personal question for you to take with you today. And that is this. How has God's word been decentered from your life? Like how there's been uh, rocks in the rut that have bumped your wheel out, there have been distractions or things in your life. And you would acknowledge, particularly if you were a follower of Jesus, you would say, yeah, I do believe that this is God's holy word. I do believe it's the only perfect rule for faith, for conduct, and, or faith and doctrine and conduct, but I haven't actually cracked it. When was it? I think I read it. I think in May I read something, you know. I'm not mocking. I'm, I'm, this is real stuff, right? It's easy for the word of God to become decentered from our lives. And, and so I want to ask you, how has that been decentered in your life? And in what ways can we recenter the word of God this fall? 
This is a personal question for you to explore. How has God's word been decentered from your life, if it has been? And in what ways can you recenter it? What creative ways? Maybe try to explore with members of your small group, with a spiritual friend, um, what's been hanging you up? It could be that you're hung up by something that you've read somewhere else even. It could be that you're having a hard time getting into it. It could be that you've just been distracted and busy and aren't we all busy? What's been preventing that for you? How can you identify that so that God's word can be recentered? At the end of the day, we don't want to just be people who say that God's word is central. We want that to be a practiced reality in our lives. Here's a great way, perhaps, to be recentered this week, a third option for your implementation. I invite you to take Psalm 119 this week. It's long long, right? Lots of verses, 170, what? Six of them, I think. Divides equally into 22, handily enough, because guess how many letters there are in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. And so here's a, here's a suggestion. You start this afternoon by reading the first little section, eight verses, I think, and you read that this afternoon. And then for the next seven days, you read the next one in the morning, the next one at noon, the next one at night. You've done it in a week. But as you do, catch the flavor and the flow of Psalm 119. And allow Psalm 119 to evoke you to both pray and to praise God for his word. Let Psalm 119 recenter your heart in the word of God. Because this is at the center of our life together. We're people of God's word, centered around the life and teachings of Jesus, which expresses the whole You know, what Jesus said about his own teaching applies to the whole of Scripture because he's the very word of God to us in the flesh. And the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation points to Jesus and finds its ultimate meaning in him. At the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches God's word as the new Moses coming down from the mountain to give God's word to God's people. And this is how he famously finishes his teaching about God's word. I thought we would read this together. I'll read it for you as we watch some recent footage from Yellowstone. Listen to this. Not the movie, not the series, please. No, (laughs) the National Park. From Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 29, these are the words of Jesus. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the floods came up. Streams rose. The winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law.
Would you pray with me as our worship team joins me again and we lead you in a final song. Lord Jesus, would you center our life in your teaching? You are the word of God. We want to be a people who put your word into practice. Knowing that your word is life and we can trust you Even we don't understand. We don't know. We can trust you at your word and we can follow you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being a God who communicates, who doesn't hide, but reveals himself to us. Ultimately, through the very word of God, Jesus but captured for us in the written word of God from start to finish, pointing to you. Today, for each one, I pray that your word would resonate within us like a gong that has been struck, rippling out the sound of joy, life. So we give praise to you for being our Savior, our King, our Redeemer. Pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.